Well, if you were in Bible class, you know that our text for today comes from John chapter 6, a chapter that has two very familiar stories and then a long discourse from Jesus where he explains the meaning of his feeding and being the bread uh, and, and uh, pouring out his blood. But uh, today what we're going to do is read the second story. We're going to kind of talk about both of them, hopefully not be too repetitious from class, but maybe uh, supplement that a little bit. And we're going to begin by reading the story of Jesus walking on the water. Let's be standing, please, as we hear this, the Word of God. Pray that uh, our hearts will be open to hear His words. This begins right after Jesus had fed the 5,000. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make Him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by Himself. When evening came, His disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed three or three and a half miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were terrified. But he said to them, It is I. Don't be afraid. Then... They were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were headed. May God bless the reading of his word. I love Ed Houston. I love to hear him talk. Uh, I like the sound of his voice. It just, uh, maybe because I, I, I know the man, and when I hear his voice, I just feel good. But I also love to hear the stories he tells about his family. He's got a marvelous family. And by sharing those stories, he kind of lets us in on the inside. And that, that, that's sort of where I was planning on starting today anyway, and he kind of beat me to it because I wanted to start by recognizing how it is the stories that we share together as a family that really make us a family. Every one of you has stories in your family, and when you get together on holidays with extended family, many times these stories start being told. I had one in particular I wanted to share, but Ed's story kind of jogged my mind about another story, and I wanted to share it instead. It has to do with Pat and my mother uh, sitting in our kitchen in Tyler, Texas, and I was in the den and could hear them talking, and my mother was telling her a family story, and she was talking about the day that I was born, and that had been by that time maybe 40, 45 years ago, and she was talking about uh, that I was born, and I, I got here about at noontime on a Sunday, and that my dad was so excited that he realized it was noon on Sunday and he wanted to go to the church because church was just letting out and he could tell his friends and his family that I'd been born. Well, mother had had a pretty rough time. I weighed like 10, 6, I think, or something like that when I was born. And she wasn't feeling really good at the moment. So when dad left her to go and announce my birth, she felt very abandoned and as she was telling Pat this story, I heard Pat say, well, it sounds like you're still kind of angry about it. She says, I'm about to get over it. <laughs> All right, that's just one of our family stories. You have, the one I was going to tell, I'm not going to tell. Just ask one of my boys sometime when you see him about the time that dad had to eat mayonnaise on a hamburger. Now, that will mean nothing to you, 
but they will die laughing uh, whenever they're reminded of that particular story. Stories really make us a family. It's true with church as well. The reason that so many of you feel so much at home here is because you have stories that you have experienced here. And you hear those stories again and you share those stories with others. On the other side, those of you who are visiting or if you're fairly new to this congregation, you haven't quite got those stories yet. And it it can't happen immediately. It takes a little bit of time of coming and doing and living with folks before the stories start to accumulate. Around here, if you listen, you're going to hear stories about camp. You're going to hear stories about retreats. You're going to hear stories about people that are here and people that used to be here. How many of you have a Margaret Williams story to tell? All right. Now, see, if you're sitting next to a person that raised their hand after church, say, tell me your Margaret Williams story, okay? Because Margaret was just this vivacious, wonderful lady that anytime you were around Margaret, something happened, and you've got a story to tell about that. Well, even if you don't have the stories in this congregation yet, if you're a Christian, you share together the stories in the Bible. And these stories bind us together in many levels. One is that we all know the stories, and so we have that in common. But as we come to know these stories, we realize that these are not just stories about things that happened a long time ago, that these are really stories about us, that these are our stories, that we enter into these stories, and and they bind us together as family. In John chapter 6, there are two of these very familiar stories that bind us together and really become our story. And we want to focus in to begin with on this, the story of the feeding of the 5,000. Now, this is a story that the vast majority of you in here could get up right now and tell me the basic outlines of this story. Even before you came here, if you went to class and studied again, you already knew this story. It's an important story because we know that because it's the only story in the ministry of Jesus that all four of the gospel writers tell. Did you realize that? That it's the only one that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tell about a miracle that Jesus did. So they obviously liked to tell this story and felt like it was an important story. Another interesting thing about it is that if you went back and read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you read all four of their accounts, you'd realize that all four of them are quite a bit different. Now, they don't contradict each other, but they, they emphasize different points about the story. So today we want to look at John's telling and look at particular some of the things that John really emphasized. Because I think that if I did ask you to tell me this story, your story would be sort of a conglomeration of all four stories. That's what mine would be. But we want to zero in on John and let him tell the story and look at some of the things that are rather peculiar about John's telling of this story. First thing you notice, if you read all four stories, something different about John is, John is the only one who mentions this little boy who had the food. Now, does that surprise you? I have to admit that even though I'd read all these so many times, I thought, wow, is that true? I went back and looked again. Yeah, Matthew doesn't say anything about the boy. Mark doesn't. Luke doesn't. But John does. Now, in Matthew and Mark and Luke, they do talk about the fact that there wasn't any food, that there were 5,000 men 
And they all do mention that, that they're only counting the men. And Matthew even points out that there were a lot of women and children there too. How many? We don't know. But yet, if there were 5,000 men there, and if church attendance then was like it is now, there were probably even more women there and more children. So we're talking about a crowd of at least 10,000, 15,000, maybe even 20,000 people that are gathered there. But in all of that, it's only John that mentions the little boy. The other ones talk about they discuss the fact they didn't have food. And in some of the cases, Jesus sort of initiates the congregation. Other accounts, the disciples do. John points out which two disciples it is that Jesus actually talked to. He challenges Philip. He says, Philip, what are we going to do? We've got all these people here, thousands and thousands of people, and we don't have any food. What are we going to do? And Philip kind of scratches his head and looks around and says, you know, it would take a half a year's wages to go and to buy enough food for everybody just to have a little bite. And then John tells us it's Andrew who evidently had been out scouring through the crowd asking, does anyone have any food? Because it's Andrew that brings the little boy to Jesus and says, this little boy has brought some food. So let's look at this little boy for a little bit and see what it is that John tells us about this boy. First of all, he tells us he is a boy, which means he's not yet 13 years old. You didn't call anyone that was over 13 in that culture a boy anymore. They were a young man. They were a man. So he is called a boy, but not just a boy. He's called a little boy, which means he's probably like six, seven, eight. So as you play out this story in your mind, make sure you have it a little boy who has brought his lunch. Well, what else do we know about him? Well, he seems to be all by himself. Now, I hope that's not true. I hope that he had family there. Maybe he had come with friends. But one thing we do know about him, he's poor. How do we know that this little boy is poor? Well, John is the one that tells us he is. Because John tells us that he brought barley bread. And if you could afford anything other than that, you bought it. All right? You only ate barley bread if you had very little resources. It wasn't really a good tasty bread. It wasn't like the wheat bread that everybody else ate. And yet this little boy had brought what he had to spend this time with Jesus. And he had five little loaves or biscuit sized pieces of bread and two dried fish. Now, I want to ask a question, too, that we don't know the answer to. Don't you like to have questions asked that we don't know the answer to? But I think I do know the answer to this, but I can't prove it. We've got 20,000 or so people there. I want to ask you, do you think that this little boy was the only person in that crowd who had any food at all? Now, think about it. If that's true, my mom wasn't there. Pat wasn't there. (laughs) We never take a trip out on the road that there's not some food stashed somewhere in the car just in case, all right? Well, I have trouble believing that there was that many people together and somebody didn't have something else there. Now, why is it that they didn't come clean and say, well, I've got a little bit of food? 
Now, we could paint them with a really black brush and say, well, they were selfish. They wanted to keep it for themselves. But I don't know. I tend to think that if I had a snicker bar in my pocket and it became, it came to be dinner time and there were 20,000 people and everybody's saying, there's no food to eat. Nobody has any food. I think, well, what good would that do? What good would it do to pull that Snickers out of my pocket and share it? It wouldn't be that I wanted to keep it just for myself. It's just like, why bother? But this little boy had responded to the plea. For some reason, whenever the disciples started going through the crowd saying, does anyone have any food that we can eat? The little boy raised his hand and said, I do. Now, why is that? Well, maybe it's because he's just so little he doesn't know any better. He's just so innocent. He was asked a question. He tells the truth. You got any food? Yeah, I've got some food. Here it is. Or it could be that because he was so poor, he was so willing to share his food. That's a lesson that I learned just right out of high school. Uh, I mentioned to you before, I spent a summer in Arkansas selling Bibles, a very formative summer in my life, if I do say so, Uh, around Arkadelphia, Arkansas, out by D-Light, Arkansas. First lesson I learned is it is not Delight, Arkansas. It is Delight, Arkansas. And I would go out into the countryside there, and occasionally I would come across a big, nice house somebody had, had built. And when I first started doing this, I thought, oh, they've got a lot of money. They'll buy a Bible. <laughs> Wrong. I don't think I ever sold a Bible to anyone. I don't think anyone ever came to the door in one of those big, nice houses. Now, I know that sounds a little stereotypical and everything, but I learned that if I was tired and I was lonely... And I went and knocked on the door of a little shack. Somebody would come to the door and they might not have any money to buy a Bible from me, but I would be invited in. I'd be given a glass of iced tea and we would sit and we'd visit. Sometimes there's something about poverty that makes people even more generous than those of us who have even more resources. So it could be that this little boy just, well, people are hungry. I know what it's like to be hungry. I'll share my food. Or it could be just that he was a young boy that had a lot of faith. But I do know this, that whenever he offered his food to Jesus, Jesus received his offering. Listen to verse 11, John chapter 6. Then Jesus, now your version may say took, and that's an okay translation, but really the word is lambano, it's to receive. Then Jesus received the loaves, and he gave thanks for them. Probably said the typical Jewish prayer of that day for thanks for food. Blessed be you, O Lord of the universe, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And he began to break the food, and he began to pass it out, and everybody ate and ate and ate until they had eaten everything that they wanted to eat. Now, we know that story. But it all begins with a little boy who offers what he has, and then it really takes off when Jesus receives that offering. And we're going to talk about that that word a little bit more in just a moment. But I want to pause right here and let it just be said, once again, that when we offer what we have, whether it be money, ourselves, time, energy, care, love, 
When we offer what we have and Jesus receives that offering, big things happen. I want to prove to you that, and I started just to give you some examples myself, but I asked Bob Knox to come up here. Come on, Bob. Bob lives with this every day, and uh, he's going to share with you how he has seen this happen as well. Has your faith ever been taken to class? Well, I'm telling you what, Rust Street Ministries is a good teacher. I've been there, oh, almost a year, and looked at the bank statement, and we were kind of running out of funds. And so I talked to Harold, I said, we're going to have to cut back. This was on a Wednesday. The next Tuesday, Kelly went out to the mailbox because she had forgotten to go the week before. There was a $10,000 check in the mailbox. The Lord just sent a bullet right across the bow of my boat. And he says, Bob, you're not running this thing. And besides that, it's not even your boat. It's mine. We've received some bigger checks. You know, like the Health Foundation this last week. They're going to give us 200000 for our new building. We had one family that helped us out tremendously with the price of the new building. I don't, they're from here, and I don't even know who they are. But you know, it's, it's not the great big checks that keeps Rust Street going. I mean, we need them. <laughs> don't get me wrong. But it's the small ones. It's like the at-risk teacher counselor that came from one of the high schools a couple of weeks ago and she said I've got a family that's in need and I need food and I need clothing we said take what you want she did she sat down at the table and she wrote out a check for a hundred dollars Frank and Jerry went on a pickup Friday and they met a lady that was confined to a wheelchair and she donated some furniture to Rust Street. And then she asked, could you move some other pieces of furniture for me? They did. And she wrote them out a check for Rust Street. We got a gentleman that goes to church right here, and I can't mention his name because he'd be embarrassed. But he does run uh, coon dogs at night. I don't know how many times that man has stuck his hand out and either put cash in my hand or put something in my pocket just because he wants to help people. But I guess the biggest gift we've ever had was when I was telling y'all about our hopes and dreams for Rust Street. Two little girls right here on the second row, Dusty and Melody Smith. After it was all over, they came, they came up to me and they said, we want to give you something. They said, we told my mom and dad we had $14 in our piggy bank. We want Rust, to ha- Rust Street to have it. And they put $14 in my hand. 
See, they know they have a father that can take a few fish and a few nasty loaves of barley bread and change people's lives. In the three and a half years at Rust Street, we've increased 560%. Do you know we have the same amount of money in the bank that we did three and a half years ago? This story is not a story anymore. He's still changing lives. He's still increasing the loaves and the fishes. On one level, am I on yet? Okay. On one level, we can say, well, it just makes sense that if everybody gives just their little bit and you put it all together, it makes a big pile. Yeah. But this story tells us that when we don't hold back what little we have, not just money, but what we have to give, not holding back thinking, well, it's such a little bit that it really won't matter. It really doesn't matter if I do this or give this. When we don't hold back and Jesus receives, then great things happen. Now, I promised you we were going to look at that word receiving just a little bit longer as we close. And it really has to do more with the second story that we read as our text. But John loves the word receive. And for him, whenever time he pulls that word out and puts it into a story, it means something. For example, in John chapter 1, verse 11, talking about Jesus coming to this earth, he said, Jesus came to what was his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who do receive him, he gave power to become children of God. One more example, there's many in John, but John chapter 13, verse 20. Jesus says, very truly, I tell you, whoever receives one whom I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives he who sent me. So with this in mind, let's go back to the story that we were telling. This, this story happens right after the feeding of the 5,000. And immediately after the 5,000 are fed, then everybody starts talking about who Jesus is and they come up with some ideas. And that's why it says in verse 15, when Jesus realized they were about to come and receive, no, wait a minute, it doesn't say that. When they were about to come and take him by force and make him king. Isn't that interesting that these people have some different ideas about what they could do? Oh, Jesus is going to be useful to me. I'm going to, we're going to go get him and we're going to take him and we're going to force him to be the one that we want him to be. And that's why Jesus runs away from them. He goes up in the mountain by himself, and the rest of the story happens rather quickly. The disciples are there alone without Jesus. They get in a boat. They decide they're going to cross the lake over to Capernaum, where many of them lived and where it was the base of Jesus' operations. And so they're on their way, but along the way, they run into a storm, don't they? And here they are without Jesus. The storm is raging. They're rowing along, And suddenly they look up and see something or someone or whatever walking across the water. And it says they're terrified. And Jesus says, don't be afraid. It's me. 
Well, Jesus spoke better. He spoke proper English. It is I. Actually, he said, I am, which is a description of God as well. And it's at that point that the disciples do something that changes everything. It changes the storm. It changes their attitude. It changes their lives. Let me read that verse. This is verse 21. After Jesus said this, then they were willing immediately to... Ah, you're ahead of me. To receive him. This story, and these two put together, tell us that Jesus is one who wants to receive what we can give. And if we will but trust him with who we are, and what we have, and what we are, he can make it into something wonderful. For any offering that we give him out of the innocence and faith of our hearts, he will receive and bless. But on the other hand, he reminds us that he wants our hearts to receive him. Not to approach him on a bargaining basis, not to come to him and demand that he be who we want him to be, not to decide what he should do, but simply to be willing to take him in the boat, Bob, whether it's your boat or not. Be willing to take him into our lives and let him be who he will be. To receive him. To put his name on in baptism. To believe in him. All these things are tied just to receive him and let him be. These stories remind us that if we will offer, Jesus will receive. And that Jesus stands right in front of us and asks us the question, are you willing to receive me? Our answer to that question is probably the most important answer we'll ever give in our lives. Let's stand and sing.